impose limits on outbound investments by U.S. companies, which uh, does target China, uh, U.S. company investment in China. So uh, the political tensions, uh, they're, they're not far away from the business space. Now, maybe it doesn't have an effect on kind of the, the, the trade and more mundane goods, whether that's the export of ag products or, or consumer goods from the Chinese uh, manufacturers to the U.S. But once we start moving higher up the value chain, whether it's in the tech space or the financial space, which uh, you know, a lot of us know is a market that the U.S. companies want to expand in China, uh, I, I think we're going to see some carryover into the into the uh, the business sphere soon. Okay, Ross, thank you very much. That's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Safeo Group over in Taiwan. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets this morning, the SX200 in Australia off a quarter of a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan down now 0.6%. Uh, the Cosby also on the decline off 0.4%. And it's going to be a similar story for the Hang Seng, looking for a fall of about 200 points at the open this morning. Thank you very much for listening. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Coming up after the news is Back Chats with Janice Wong and Danny Gittings. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy, one or two light patches. Uh, rain patches going to be misty in the morning and at night maximum temperature about 21 degrees and then the outlook is mainly cloudy and misty in the next couple of days temperature right now is 18 degrees 88 percent relative humidity times 8 31 here's barry o'rourke with the half hour news Hong Kong has sent a search and rescue team to Turkey after the government there called for international help following Monday's earthquake that has now killed at least 12,000 people. Speaking at Hong Kong International Airport ahead of the team's departure for Istanbul, Turkey's Consul General Payami Kaleonju expressed his gratitude. I would like to thank here the government of Hong Kong Special Administrative Region. They very fast, promptly and positively replied our request. They organized a very professional uh, team of uh, search and rescue officers as well as uh, uh, firemen department uh, and the health department. They are taking in part uh, in this uh, delegation. The acting chief executive, Eric Chan, said that so far there have been no reports of Hong Kong residents seeking help in the areas hit by the quakes. Earlier, the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, travelled to the area worst hit by the quakes. Speaking in the south of the country, near Syria, Mr Erdogan said there had been difficulties with the initial response due to damaged roads and airports, but that rescue efforts were now back on track. All state institutions are working at the moment. On the first day, we experienced some problems. But then on the second day and today, the situation has been taken under control. We will never allow our citizens to be left out on the streets. The Turkish opposition has accused the government of mismanaging relief efforts. The chief executive, John Lee, says he hopes to sign a free trade agreement with the United Arab Emirates to build on trade ties that surged by about 35% in 2021 to just under 13 billion US dollars. Mr. Lee was speaking at an investment forum in Dubai, the last stop on his Middle East tour. An FTA between Hong Kong and the UAE, therefore, is the logical next step in our relations. I'm confident it will substantially boost trade and investment ties between us. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has addressed British MPs thanking the UK for its support, but asking for his country to be supplied with military aircraft. In his speech, President Zelensky said Ukraine would prevail over Russia and this would have far-reaching consequences. The victory will change the world. 
and this will be a change that the world has long needed. After we win together any aggressor, it doesn't matter, big or small, will know what awaits him if he attacks international order. Finally, a human resources consultancy says many international employees left Hong Kong for more livable locations due to the COVID restrictions imposed in the SAR last year. ECA International says that Hong Kong ranked number 92 in the list of the world's most livable locations last year, down 15 places from the year before. ECA's regional director for Asia, Lee Kwan, says most Asian locations had a higher ranking last year after a fall in 2021. But the situation was different for Hong Kong. There'll be more news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and our guest presenter is Danny Gittings. Good morning. On today's programme, we're looking at how attractive Hong Kong is to expats. According to a human resources consultancy study, Hong Kong is now the 92nd most livable city in the world for expats, down 15 places from a year ago. Its organiser, ECA International, attributed the fall to the impact from COVID restrictions, as well as changes in the political environment. But now that COVID restrictions have largely been done away with and the government's busy putting Hong Kong back on the international map, how quickly can we climb back up the ladder? After 9am, we'll look at the controversy over an award-winning documentary that's got the whole city talking. So let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free, or you can email us at backchat at rthk.hk. Or you can give us a call. The number there, 233-88266. Now to kick off our discussion this morning, we have on the line Lawrence Hung, President of the Hong Kong Institute of Human Resource Management, and Andrew Huang, a Hong Konger who works at a fintech company in Singapore. We'll also be joined in a moment by Lee Quain, the Regional Director for Asia at ECA International. Good morning, Mr. Hung. Good morning, Janice. So how attractive would you say Hong Kong is right now to overseas talent? Well, as a Hong Konger, I always uh, believe Hong Kong is an attractive place for talent. Um, but of course, I think uh, because of the COVID um, situation, I think a lot of the foreigner or maybe those people outside of Hong Kong do have a concern about all these restrictions or all these measurements uh, that impose to fight against COVID. Um, it's a little bit, I won't say scary, but worry about. So uh, I think um, well, we need to, you know, um, do something to, to let the outsider or, or those people live outside of Hong Kong to have a better understanding of what's going on in Hong Kong. And you yourself have moved from Hong Kong to Singapore. I think you're speaking to us from Singapore right now, isn't that correct? Uh, that's probably, yeah, that's probably <laughs> a confirmation of that one. Let's um, um, continue with uh, Mr. Hung. Mr. Yeah. So, yeah. so um, there has been a decline in overseas talent over the past few years. Um, are there any signs that they're coming back? I mean, especially now that almost all the uh, COVID uh, restrictions have been scrapped. Well, I, I can see the train. No, uh, if I talk, uh, talk around with my um, counterparts in other professional bodies and also uh, my, my colleagues or friends, I do see um, people uh, start, you know, like um, talking about coming back. Uh, to Hong Kong, given all the, uh, most of the measure, uh, the restriction is released. Um, and uh, also Hong Kong is, you know, trying to, Hong Kong government is trying to promote Hong Kong 
and given we, we the policy address, we also talk about coming competition, those measures put in place. I do believe that, you know, like Hong Kong is still um, being considered as, you know, a, um, a place for talents to come back to work and develop their career. Yeah. All right. Let's go to Mr. Huang. Um, you are originally from Hong Kong, but you moved to Singapore for work. So you're quite familiar with um, both uh, both places. Um, so how attractive would you say Hong Kong is right now to overseas talent uh, now that uh, almost all the COVID measures, uh, all the COVID restrictions have been removed? Hi, uh, yeah, thank you for having me. Yes, so um, I actually second what um, every of the other guests has just said. Um, I do, uh, after, you know, when I just heard that um, Hong Kong is currently being ranked the 92nd most livable place for expats, I do think that is a bit of an over-exaggeration personally. Um, after having lived in Hong Kong my entire life um, and also having lived in other countries such as the UK, um, the US, and now Singapore, um, I, I can say, and this is perhaps a bit of a biased opinion that, um, yeah, at least uh, in my opinion, um, Hong Kong is still the, one of the best cities um, in the world to live in, um, regardless of uh, what's happened over the past three years because of the political situation and, and the COVID restrictions. And also now that the COVID restrictions have been lifted, um, you know, it, it's really great to see that Hong Kong is coming back into a lot more of what is, you know, shine of its former self used to be. Um, in terms of you know, the number of activities you can do now without the restrictions, um, ranging from F&B as well as to the, um, the immense amount of nature um, that, you can, that you can experience in Hong Kong that you really cannot find as much in any other um, Asian um, capital city. Does, uh, uh, does that include Singapore then? I mean, uh, does Hong Kong, as we hear so many stories, I mean, and does... Uh, you yourself talk about moving to Singapore. We hear so many stories about people moving from um, Hong Kong to Singapore, but you're saying there are things you still can't find, presumably including in Singapore, that you can find in Hong Kong. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there, there are many things in Hong Kong that I think make it quite an attractive city for anyone to live in, um, especially if you love the combination of the city life and nature. So, you know, to put it simply, Hong Kong has mountains, islands, and beaches, you know, more, more of, of these types of, um, I guess, like, you know, natural attractions um, than most other Southeast Asian capital cities, um, especially including Singapore, which, you know, by landmass um, is, is, is just smaller than Hong Kong. Um, so therefore, you know, the number of new experiences you can have in Hong Kong um, whether it be new restaurants, bars, but also just you know, new hikes to take on, new outlying islands to visit, uh, new communities and neighborhoods to immerse yourself in, is just more diverse and, and, and greater in range um, than, for instance, a, a, a city um, like Singapore. But this also applies to cities like Shanghai, um, Beijing as well. But how about work, <coughs> work opportunities? I mean, there's so many people, yeah. maybe including yourself, uh, move to Singapore for work factors. Are there, are there, are there, uh, some senses in which um, Hong Kong's lagging behind there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and there really are. I think that is really the main reason for the immigration of expats out of Hong Kong to other um, you know, uh, regional hubs like Singapore, um, especially Singapore, actually. Um, so... Um, you know, there, there are macro factors, you know, to discuss, uh, which is, um, yeah, I guess, like, there are push factors that, that are making people leave Hong Kong, um, which have been um, since 2019, 
the ongoing turmoil from the political situation in Hong Kong, the uncertainty of China's you know, current control as well as future influence over uh, Hong Kong's uh, financial and political situation, um, and, and, and the difference between that and the, you know, the, the continual relative and increasing attractiveness of cities like Singapore. Um, so on a macro level, you know, we're seeing a lot of, we're seeing, yes, we're seeing residents that are just in expats that maybe don't have roots in Hong Kong and are getting tired of all these restrictions and all these um, instability and have been thinking of cities to move to, and Singapore becomes an obvious choice. Um, but um, at a higher level, you know, more and more companies, uh, whether it be these multinational corporations, financial institutions, or startups, right, um, at, 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 a, at a much you know, more grassroots level, um, when thinking of whether to start a new uh, Asia-Pacific headquarters um, or thinking of where to move their existing, like, Asia, um, Asia headquarters, um, a lot of them have basically opted to do that in Singapore instead of Hong Kong. So instead of increasing hiring efforts in Hong Kong, they are doing that elsewhere. Um, so not only are we seeing, I guess, residents having a reason to move, um, re- re- residents feeling feeling the desire to move, but then they actually have a professional reason to do so because opportunities just increasing elsewhere. Right. Mr. Hong, let's go back to you. I mean, after listening to what Mr. Hong is saying, he's saying that opportunities are um, growing um, elsewhere apart from Hong Kong. Um, what are companies here doing to try to attract talent? Well, actually, I, I think uh, I kind of agree uh, with this one about, you know, uh, some um, multinational company is moving out of Hong Kong or try to set up the Asia-Pacific uh, hub in, in Singapore. I think this is not a uh, recent trend uh, because of many, many, many uh, reasons, uh, in, inclusive of the government, you know, tax incentive and things like that. But I think um, multinational company here in Hong Kong, uh, I think they will write on, you know, uh, the government policy address, uh, how they want to uh, compete with the talent, they give, uh, you know, um, some um, uh, ease of administration and try to um, promote Hong Kong again as a unique, attractive city. Uh, I think, and also, Hong Kong is a brain spot to uh, China. So I think multinational companies still uh, consider Hong Kong as a uh, uh, regional hub or as a, you know, like headquarters. And of course, there is a competition between Hong Kong and Singapore, I, I, I do believe. Uh, I think multinational companies are uh, trying to um, compete or attract talent is to of the entire, you know, like the onboarding system, you know, from what, from they, they land in Hong Kong, they talk, do think about the housing, do, uh, they do think about uh, the local logistics, like schooling, things like that, to making sure that they're settling in Hong Kong without, you know, any hustle. I think they attract talent back to Hong Kong, definitely talk about, you know, the lifestyle support, the housing support, to making sure that you know they 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 settling in and they live like without any headaches. I think that make them uh, think about Hong Kong is a good place to work. And also, when compared to the inflation or the price between Hong Kong and Singapore, you know, I I do believe that um, Singapore, in terms of the inflation, in terms of the price, I think it's much 
higher than that of the Hong Kong. I think that is um, those families who seek for opportunities should also think about that, the net home pay that they take home. All right. Uh, we, we now have uh, Lee Quain on the line. Uh, he's the Regional Director for Asia at ECA International. Uh, good morning, Mr. Quain. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so uh, in your study, you ranked uh, um, Singapore as the most livable place in the world for expats, while Hong Kong was ranked uh, 92. It's uh, slipped uh, a few more places. But uh, we were just uh, discussing your study and uh, Mr. Hung, uh, who, who is a Hong Konger that's uh, now working in Singapore, says uh, it's a bit of an exaggeration to rank uh, Hong Kong uh, in, in that uh, uh, 92nd place. W- what's your explanation? Well, it, it, what is interesting is Hong Kong, if we look back about 10 years ago, the gap between Hong Kong and Singapore actually wasn't that significant. Um, in our study back in 2012, um, while Singapore was still ranked number one, um, Hong Kong was actually ranked just outside of the top 10 in 12th position. So it has actually dropped significantly over the course of the past 10 years. Um, several of those factors are... Um, kind of um, circumstantial. Um, it's partly due to, in the course of the last year, the difference in terms of how Hong Kong has responded to the COVID-19 pandemic in comparison to Singapore. So throughout last year, Hong Kong maintained very strict um, social distancing uh, measures in place, whereas Singapore relaxed many of, many of its um, social distancing measures um, early on in the year. Um, so that contributed significantly to Hong Kong's um, continued fall over the course of the last year. Um, but the other factor is also due to changes in Hong Kong's political situation, um, particularly in terms of the governance um, situation here in Hong Kong, again, over the course of the past 12 months. All right. Uh, um, we will continue with uh, uh, Mr. Crane in just a moment. But uh, Mr. Hong, I know you need to go very soon. Before you go, um, can you give us a bit of a, pre- a prediction of uh, what we can expect later this year? Do you expect uh, the situation will improve, like uh, uh, more overseas talents will return to Hong Kong? Or what's your, what's your take? Well, uh, I would say, uh, you know, like Hong Kong is still a uh, lack of talent and um, <clears throat> in terms of like manpower, it's still a, a headache uh, for most of the uh, CEOs. Uh, so uh, Hong Kong unemployment rate is 3.5% uh, uh, as of December 2022. And then we can also see the um, population between the age of 25 to 44 it's only about 1.76 million, which is, you know, like uh, it's lowest time since 1997. So I think uh, most of the uh, corporation here in Hong Kong, they need talent, they need a skilled labor. So I, I, I do believe that there is a lot of like opportunities here in Hong Kong. And uh, when compared to the economy, you know, development, uh, you know, like in, in Europe and elsewhere, I think uh, the opportunities here, here in Hong Kong is huge. I do believe that, you know, like those talent will find uh, the, the best opportunity which suits their, you know, like uh, career aspiration. So I will see um, there will be a lot of uh, like talent they are interested in to live in Hong Kong or come to work in Hong Kong. 
All right, uh, Mr. Hung, thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Lawrence Hung, president of the Hong Kong Institute of Human Resource Management. Um, now let's go back to you, Mr. Queen. Um, earlier, before you joined our program, um, Mr. Hung was actually talking about how uh, about the situation in Singapore, about uh, how inflation there is higher compared to Hong Kong. And uh, it's not just inflation, right? I mean, um, rent prices is also going up there. Um, when you look at that, do, do you see a, um, a narrowing gap between Hong Kong and Singapore in terms of uh, livability? Um, so one thing to point out in relation to our study, so our study doesn't necessarily look at um, costs. So it doesn't essentially look at things such as inflation rates, um, housing costs or so on. We do study these, um, but they're studied as part of separate products um, that we research and provide to clients. What we're looking at when we come up with these rankings in terms of livability is just an overall assessment of quality of living, irrespective of the costs of purchasing items or the, the general cost of life. So generally speaking, what really separates Singapore from Hong Kong uh, are some of the factors which I mentioned earlier. So, for example, the governance situation in Hong Kong, um, the COVID-19 situation. Um, but some of these are also... Um, I would say environmental. So one of the reasons why um, Hong Kong's quality of living has always lagged behind Singapore, although not as much as it does currently, is due to our environmental factors here. Hong Kong, for example, is impacted on a regular basis by weather, natural disasters, and so on and so forth, which have a disrupt disruptive effect on lifestyles. For example, when you have black rain warnings, people obviously um, are impacted by this, can't go to work, for example, can't well, go sorry, to Sorry, so you, you think t typhoons come into... Typhoons make a, pl a place less livable, then? You, you, you yes. give a black mark on typhoons? Yes, they do. They do ha have an impact because they have a disruptive impact on people's day-to-day -day lifestyles. Um, and that's something which is absent um, from Singapore. So that's just one of the factors which determines or which causes Hong Kong to be ranked below um, Singapore. It's not the biggest factor, but what I'm saying here is these environmental issues will naturally lead Hong Kong to be ranked lower than Singapore, which has a much more stable environment. It may not necessarily be a pleasant environment for many people from a subjective point of view, but nonetheless, it has a less disruptive impact on work and living. Now, earlier on, you, you said that um, in the, the fall in um, Hong Kong's uh, ranking this year was primarily due to a combination of political and COVID factors. Uh, and, of course, the COVID factors will cha have changed. Um, so is it, uh, how much weighting was on that? Is it reasonable to suppose that other things being equal, Hong Kong is going to rise back up at least to an extent next year because um, now the situation in Hong Kong on COVID is fairly similar to Sing Singapore? Part of this decline over the course of 2021 to 2022 was due to the more stringent COVID-19 factors in place. And it's important to point out that when we did the study, we did the study during the latter half of 2022. Now, as you rightly point out, COVID-19 restrictions, many of them have actually been relaxed in Hong Kong. So I agree, other things being equal, Hong Kong should 
see a moderate rebound in its ranking um, when we come and look at the data again um, at the end of 2023. You're being quite cautious there. You're saying moderate, aren't you? Because you don't expect Hong Kong to regain all the ground it's lost, presumably due to political and other factors that haven't changed. Exactly. So um, we've seen a significant drop in Hong Kong's ranking since um, 2018. And obviously two of the key, I would imagine three of the key factors associated with, with this are social political tensions, which we saw in 2019, um, erosion of democracy and the governance issue that we've seen in Hong Kong since then, um, particularly with the imposition of the national security law from 2020 onwards, and also the COVID-19 um, situation. Now, one of those factors, as we've seen, has certainly improved, and that's obviously um, the COVID-19 situation, but there still remain underlying social political issues um, that are still unresolved in Hong Kong. All right, uh, Mr. Crane, I have a few messages here from our listeners. One of them is from Marcus. He's uh he says, uh, how are COVID restrictions largely removed? He's talking about how people still have to wear their mask and uh, about uh, the daily uh, RAT tests that students have to take. And uh, another message here from uh, caller Ed. He uh, left a comment saying that uh, one of the main reasons why expats leave Hong Kong is the high tax environment for living spaces. And uh, he said expats love living space. And uh, that's from Ed. Um, any, any response to that, Mr. Crane? I mean, uh, what's the living condition like uh, in Hong Kong when, when, it, when compared to other places, for example? Is, uh, is that an issue? Like, is that, does that uh, make Hong Kong less attractive when we talk about um, the living environment, uh, the, like, the size of flats, maybe, for example? Yes. So while we don't necessarily look, well, as part of this livability um, study that we do, so we don't necessarily look at the cost of accommodation, as I mentioned, that's something that we will look at separately um, when providing um, our data and our advice to our clients who use that. But we do obviously look at the quality and availability of accommodation. So in Hong Kong, we are aware of the fact that accommodation is typically smaller than you would expect elsewhere. And that is, that is reflected in, in our ranking, or rather in our results and in our rankings. Now, going back to the other question with regards to um, the ongoing restrictions with regards to COVID, yes, I agree that there are still some in, in place. So, again, what Hong Kong's ability to recover or regain some of its um, rankings will depend on the extent to which some of the ongoing restrictions, such as the requirements of rat tests for children attending school, for example, as well as the mask mandates that still are in effect. The extent to which they may be relaxed or removed over the course of the next 12 months obviously will impact the extent to which um, Hong Kong is seen as being normal in comparison to other locations and therefore the extent to which it may be able to um, recover its rankings and move back up. Uh, Andrew Huang is still with us. Um, and Andrew Huang, um, we, we, as we said earlier, you moved from um, Hong Kong to Singapore. In, in what circumstances would you consider? You, you were talking quite highly about Hong Kong. What, what factors would uh, you take into account to decide whether to move back to Hong Kong again? So I think the, the key, there, so there are two key factors that would uh, influence me moving back to Hong Kong. Um, so number one uh, would be uh, job opportunities. Um, so um, just to just to contextualize it a little bit more, you know, I work in tech, right? Um, specifically, you know, software tech. Um, and in this space, um, unfortunately, uh, you know, Singapore just does have a much larger uh, tech as well as venture capital ecosystem, um, and 
more job opportunities um, than Hong Kong. You know, some of the largest um, tech companies in Asia, as well as some of the West, you know, have set up their their Asia Pacific hubs um, in Singapore instead of Hong Kong, and that's where all the jobs are flooding at the moment. Um, however. So that's the first reason, and, and the second reason is uh, cost of living, which really should be, uh, which which is which is a, a large factor for me. Um, when I moved to Singapore about two years ago, um, a big draw was that um, you know the cost of rent for a similar type of space, of course the size in Singapore is larger, but a similar type of space um, was far lower than Hong Kong. I'd be paying about uh, I, I was paying forty percent less than what I would be paying for a similar type of type of accommodation in Hong Kong, um, in Singapore. However, that reality has really changed um, as of now. Um, inflation uh, has skyrocketed, and the demand for for uh, accommodation in Hong Kong, has, uh, sorry, demand for accommodation in Singapore has, has increased as well. Um, so the cost of living has increased drastically. Um, and so if cost of living continues to increase in Singapore and the professional opportunities are starting to return to Hong Kong, in my space, then I would have a much larger incentive to move back to Hong Kong. Uh, all right. Uh, Mr. Mr. Huang, um, unfortunately, the, uh, the 9 o'clock news is coming up, so I will have to uh, leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's uh, Andrew Huang, a Hong Konger who works at a fintech company in Singapore. And uh, also many thanks to Lee Quain, the Regional Director for Asia at ECA International. After the news, we will look at the controversy over an award-winning documentary to my 19-year-old self. Have you watched it? What do you think? You can share your view with us on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And now here's a quick look at the weather. It will be mainly cloudy with one or two light rain patches. The uh, top temperature will be around 21 degrees during the day and uh, winds moderate to fresh easterlies occasionally strong offshore and on high ground at first and a quick look at the outlook it'll be mainly cloudy and misty in the next couple of days warm humid and foggy on sunday and monday and right now the temperature reading at the observatory is 18 degrees relative humidity 88 percent you're listening to the news on rthk Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Thursday morning with Danny Gittings and me, Janice Wong. In the next 25 minutes or so, we're going to look at the controversy everyone's talking about over the award-winning documentary To My 19-Year-Old Self, which follows the lives of six students from Yinghua Girls' School over a period of 10 years. The film was halted in Hong Kong cinemas this week after several participants in the documentary said they had not been given, had not given consent for the film to be publicly screened. So why are so many people interested in this case and what can we learn from it? Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Now to discuss the controversy, we're joined on the line now by Kenny Ng, an associate professor at the Baptist University's Academy of Film and Elizabeth Kerr, a film critic. Good morning, Professor Ng. Hey, good morning, everyone. Good morning and good morning, Ms. Kerr. Hi there. Thanks for, thanks for joining us on the program. So um, first of all, um, Ms. Kerr, ha- have you watched the documentary? Yeah, I did. I saw it at the film festival when it premiered there last year. Uh, and what about you, Professor? Mm? 
Uh, I haven't watched it because I'm actually waiting for my daughters uh, to finish the exam. So yes, like, that's exactly what Danny was telling yeah, me exactly earlier. Exactly the same situation <laughs> for my daughter, and it's, it's too late now, isn't it? Because it's been pulled, so um, I'm not sure we able to. Elizabeth Kerr, have you actually watched it? And I, actually, I think I've seen a, a re review you wrote about it. Um, uh, maybe you, you give us give us your impressions first of all of the documentary, and then we can go on and talk about the controversy over it. Um, oh, okay. Uh, short version is that. For me, it's okay. I didn't go to high school here. Uh, a couple of friends of mine and I who did, um, it connected with them a little bit more, uh, especially a woman uh, who went to school here. Uh, I think she understood a little bit better. And I think um, local Hong Kongers, especially local Hong Kong women who, who went through this kind of thing, will probably connect with it a lot more. As a doc, it's fine. Um, there's a lot of material in it. Um, she had to compress a long, a fairly long stretch of time into two hours. I uh, hear that there was something like 200,000 hours worth of footage um, to, to edit from. So it was quite a monumental feat to um, get everything down into a, quote, story, uh, unquote, uh, for a film. It's, um, it, it could be more enlightening in some parts. Uh, it could have less emphasis on certain things. Um, there's, there's a lot of bits that are missing as far as uh, watching a, a young woman grow up. Uh, there's not a lot of discussion of sexuality. There's not a lot of stuff about drug use or anything that might be, you know, a little bit dodgy. And I can't blame anybody for that. Um, it's it, it's it's a good jumping off point, and I think people who see it would probably have a lot to say afterwards. It's a, it's a discussion starter more than anything else. It is interesting. There have been other mixed reviews as well, but yet it, it went on to win an award, didn't it? Um. Yeah, there's there's something um, there's a purity in its intent, <laughs> so-called so purity in its intent. Considering the the controversy right now, I'm gonna, I'm going to use that word loosely, but there's a purity in its intent, and I understand what she was, what Mabel Chern, the director, I and possibly the school, I understand what they were going for. Um, anybody who's ever seen the Seven Up series by Michael Apted will understand. Um, the appeal of, of watching uh, somebody, you know, grow and come into them into themselves and see how the world around them impacts them and all that kind of thing. So I, I think that's where the film is trying to go. It hit that sometimes, it missed it um, in other times. Right. So, so Ms. Kerr, you've watched the documentary. Um, what do you make of the whole, uh, the entire controversy? I mean, are you surprised by the strong backlash? Um, a backlash is, is we're living in a time when, when people are hyper-focused on consent and things like that and uh, control over your own, um, you know, autonomy and agency in a public space. I get that. Um, when I went into it and when I went into writing a couple of stories about it, my assumption was, and you can only assume this as, as a viewer, that everything is above board and on the line. This happened a couple of years ago as well with... Um, uh, I think, it was a, I think it's called Soraya Sabaya. It's, a, I think, the Swedish film. It's a documentary about ISIS uh, sex trafficking, uh, women who were trafficked uh, in ISIS a, a few years back. After the film was finished, a couple of them came out and said, we did not give consent to be filmed. So, you know, you can't, you can't blame them for, for standing up and defending themselves and saying, I didn't say yes to this. However that's what you hope as a viewer and as a producer and possibly as distributors 
um, when you get the film. Did you ask everybody, were you crystal clear? Did you make your intentions known? And you have to assume that they said yes. After the fact, um, I can see how when, 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 when you start, you're thinking A, and when the finished film comes out, it's, uh, it's not exactly what you thought it was going to be, and then you can back up and say, well, whoa, 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 this isn't what I meant. Isn't it entirely I predictable? And I understand the, the controversy, especially considering that when, when the film started, when they started making this film, these were 10, 12, 14-year-old yeah. girls. It's, it's, especially now, these days, it's not a good look to be accused of exploiting young women. Isn't it entirely predictable <clears throat> a project of this type you could run into this kind of trouble? Because, yeah, as you're saying, you start off and they're only like 12 years old and um, um, and uh, they can't give consent themselves, so it has to be the consent of their parents. And uh, you you finish up 10 years later when they're so, they're so much older and so much has changed in their lives that those are precisely the sort of people who, are, who might well have reservations about something that their parents signed them up for 10 years earlier. Absolutely. And when you're a 10-year-old or 12-year-old, it is up to your parents to say yes or no to whatever you do um, and to, to speak for you and on, in, on behalf of your best, on your child's best interests. However, um, when the film was finished, um, I would expect that you go to someone who is absolutely now an adult and absolutely able to say, whoa, that's, that's a little off the mark. That's not what I was thinking when you said this. Um, and it's that point they say, could you please? I, I, I don't. I don't want to be involved in this. Either remove those scenes, or you know, sit down and, and rehash out a new deal. That's the only way to do it. And if if one of one of the girls uh, has alleged that she consistently said, "I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this," and she was ignored. So that that's the issue more than anything else. I don't think I don't think the actual act of tracking someone's life for a few years is the problem. That's not the problem. That's, an, that's right. valid documentary filmmaking. All right, let's go it's to... everything that came after. All right, let's go to Professor mm. Mm. Professor mm. Mm. good morning. So, yes. so what's your Hi. take over the, on this uh, controversy? Uh, yes, I think uh, the way why so many people care about this incident, uh, first because I think it's about uh, school students, uh, teenagers. Uh, we are talking about young people, uh, school students, who we believe that uh, society should do everything to protect well. Uh, but what some of the film protagonists reveal is uh, Popular Magazine uh, recently has told a very different uh, sensational story that some of them were being uh, neglected or even exploited in the emotional responses to the whole filming process and lately uh, about the events of going to the public screenings. Uh, one of them even, as we know, has drawn a post the public screening of the documentary uh, obviously, she has not been able to cope with the pressure uh, as anticipated uh, of having her personal growing up story being exposed to uh, film or public media attention or later even scrutiny. So I think uh, people, society in general, we care about these young people and their psychological and emotional problems and asking whether they have been somehow maybe mistreated or neglected. Uh, someone may have been... Uh, paying enough attention to hear the voices enough, right? Or they are not inadequate, they are inadequately handled uh, their emotional responses uh, promptly, particularly with the recent screening uh, events.
Yes. How much of the um, interest in this um, uh, controversy do you think is, is related to the fact that it involves such a famous school, Lingua, and, and so some questions also being raised about how they handled it? Uh, yes, I think I think uh, in the part it makes the problem uh, the event uh, the incident even more complicated because uh, it is under the goodwill of the school, right? A uh, very uh, prestigious uh, church school uh, who is doing uh, something good for the students, right? Uh, so in a way, uh, it is also very difficult uh, to try to communicate and to uh, having what kind of like social resources, maybe can social workers, uh, psychologists step in to uh, really uh, take care of the students or talk to them or is, is the school or the filmmakers who try to right, communicate with the students. I think that makes the uh, issue a little bit more complicated to handle in this case. Should filmmakers try and make these kind of documentaries? I mean, this... There's, there's a lot of interest. We said well, we, mm. we'd like to see ourselves, and we left it too late, and a lot of people have seen it. But if you make this kind of documentary, then you, mm. you, almost always you're going to have a, a danger of this kind of, this kind of problem, aren't you? Uh, yes. Um, I think uh, uh, partly I think it is because of the uh, long uh, period of the project. Uh, as, we, as we know, right, the project uh, began as a kind of actually a, uh, a film uh, to help the school to raise funds or whatever. Uh, that is not known, actually, uh, in my understanding, right, uh, that in like 10 years ago that the film it will be made into a much longer feature film uh, uh, documentary and go in public streaming. What happened, as we know, is uh, something that developed recently. So so I think, in a way, that, that it, is, it is good to make a um, documentary about uh, students' lives, Okay, if that's for uh, the, a good intention uh, for the school, uh, for the young people. But I think what is being, being developed uh, is a little bit more complicated, as, right? Uh, it takes such a long time, and then the students, they're also growing up, and they have uh, different attitudes and responses uh, to, the, to, the, to the, what they call the DVD teams, right? The, the filmmaking, uh, the crew, okay? So, so finally, what is being developed is very different from it is set out to, to, to be doing, right? And then uh, what the filmmaker has been uh, talking about is finally made into a, a much longer documentary and reflecting upon the uh, students' uh, growing up experiences as well as social changes. And finally, okay, distributors come uh, into and then talk about uh, distributing the film to the public and, 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 and things just developing uh, something that is widely different from what it is initially started to do. I think the whole controversy, the whole problem arises from that, this kind of long duration and very uh, different kinds of developments of this film. And then, and how you can asking for the consent of the uh, students uh, who uh, uh, initially was uh, the parents signing for them, but as they grow up, I think they surely have their own uh, position. They are growing up adults right now, and they should have the uh, the right to say whether uh, they like it to be made into a film or they like the film to be shown into the public. Right, Professor. So, so how should people get uh, um, consent for for documentaries uh, like these? I mean, th these documentaries they don't uh, usually cast the subjects mm. in the best light. So, so what is the yeah. best practice? Okay, I think these are very different practices of documentaries. Uh, it is very hard to put pin it down because, like, if you are making news documentaries, you you are doing. 
social event, uh, semi social events and interviewing passers by on the street, it's hard to get the consent, right? But for some arranged uh, stories, documentary stories, definitely, okay, uh, the consent form, what I want to say is that the consent form is just not protecting, right, the, the producers or the filmmakers that, or that you have the right, you're given the consent, and that right now I have to show your film, I have to publish your story, then you, can, you cannot say no anymore, no. I think the consent form actually is a way uh, to protect the interest, to protect the benefits of the film subjects, right? Uh, just like in, in, in universities, when we are doing the oral history projects, we are uh, uh, we, we need to cautiously ask the consent from the interviewees, and the interviewees can withdraw any time if they think that that is not their want. They, they they want to do it that way, or they or they don't want their stories to be published. So in the same way, I think the consent form should uh, uh, should work for the best interest for for the students. For the young people in this case, okay. So I think it is not just the consent form that being made a kind of paper or law uh, art, uh, document. It is about more the mutual consent uh, and communication between uh, the film, the filmmaker, and the film subjects and the students. And I think it's important to get their understanding and consent, particularly when it is made into later a documentary film, and then uh, the filmmaker announced that they want to put this film on, on, on public uh, screening. Uh, that's something very, very different from what's initially signed up for by the parents, right? As a just kind of short term, or celebrating the school's uh, uh, history and things like that. So I think it's very important that the consent form is just a paper, but it is uh, the spirit is to respect the, uh, the rights and interests of the film subjects and the protesters. Right. So in this case, do you think this whole controversy will deter people from making uh, documentary films like this uh, in future? I mean, they um, spend so many years on this and then uh, they can't really use it in the end. Yeah. <laughs> this is no, my no, share. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth Kerr, you wanted to say that, that, that in fact, you, you seem to have some sympathy for the filmmaker when you were talking about this earlier. You were talking about the... I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say sympathy. I don't know what happened, so I don't want to say yay or nay to that. Um, but uh, this, kind of, this kind of snag, this kind of snaggle, this kind of um, misstep or ineptitude, whichever one it is, mis misunderstanding, whatever the case is, um, does hurt documentary filmmaking. And documentary filmmaking is an extremely important form. Um, it's 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 something that should be valued and it's something that i mean there's no there's also no professional guild or or association that will set down rules and create a framework that must absolutely be ad adhered to um here as far as i know anyway um which would be something that helps um y you know Stepping out and going, okay, I want to, I want to make a story about that. There's more to the story than just the girls growing up, and there's certainly more than the school, which is why they changed their mandate to begin with. Whether or not they didn't get consent along the way, as each passing year, each term, each each summer, whatever the whatever the the, the time frame they wanted to use would have been, whether or not they didn't get consent there from the participants each time, that's another issue. That should have been done, um, and it should have been done before the final release, and everybody should have been clear. Um, I don't. I'm afraid that this will stop people from making documentaries here, especially. Do you think because they, it's just not worth it? 
they should have got consent every, or renewed consent every year. I mean, because realistically, people aren't going to change their minds in a project like this. Of course they? they are. Of course yeah. they are. But that school has um, the school, the, the the school, the principal, whoever decided on who would participate, had something like 50, 50 students to choose from, or they offered you know, uh, 50 participants that might be interesting for... There was 50 of them. There's hundreds of girls in that school. There's 200,000 hours of, of footage. There's another story in all that someplace. It's it's not difficult to change tack along the way. Oh, you, you're saying the that they that's actually... One, that's one thing about documentary. It's very fluid. They actually film material with far more than just the 10 students. Absolutely. So they would have, if, uh, if someone if someone had pulled out, they could have probably just substituted you someone else. You can make up the difference. You can, and, and what is the story you're trying to tell? Are you trying to tell a story about growing up as a girl in Hong Kong, or are you trying to tell a story about the evolution of Hong Kong through the filter of this school? There's plenty that, there's plenty of material there that you could that you could re-edit and come up with another two hours and 15 minutes. Right. Professor Ng, do you share Ms. Kerr's concern that there will be a fewer um, documentary films uh, in Hong Kong in future? Uh, I think, I think uh, the question is, right, um, basically uh, in the industry, right, we don't have uh, pay too much attention about the uh, ethical issues involved. So uh, I think actually if we can clarify or if people can uh, uh, pay more attention to these ethical issues, uh, the interaction, the respect for the in the theories of the film subjects, actually, I don't think uh, that would be a kind of like obstacle or a deterrent to making further documentaries. I think there are two different issues, right? Uh, whether uh, people are encouraged to make documentaries or whether they should respect right, uh, the ethical rights of the, the interview subjects. And I think what, what is more complicated in this case is we are talking about students, right? Below the 20 years old, and they are actually... Uh, doing under the mandate of the school and they, they, they love and respect the school the bodies very much and they also respect the right the, the, the fame filmmaker so in that sense uh, there's a way that is this not this is not I, I would imagine that could not have been a very equal communication right a very level platform for the for, for both sides uh, to exchange that uh, we're looking at the documentary about right uh, subjects to also adults uh, and then, of course, the filmmakers uh, would talk more on the equal grounds with the uh, with the with the uh, subjects, right? And, and in that case, right, well, we, we have to we have to take into consideration that the students they're so young, they're so so, so immature, and they actually uh, they kind of like uh, obeying, right, to the uh, to what sort of uh, what kind of uh, requirements they want to do, but of course, other in the process.
All right. So let's, let's return to the uh, question we raised in our introduction at the beginning of our discussion. Um, what can we learn from this controversy? <laughs> from uh, what you're saying, Professor Ng, should, should documentary filmmakers just uh, not make documentaries about uh, young students in the future? Uh, no, not really. Yeah, and not really because I think um, it is about, about the attitudes. Uh, actually, I think uh, uh, the rules that Hong Kong you can renew every year, but the way is, I think uh, you have to really respect, okay, and, and hear uh, what uh, the responses and the voices. You have to really put, if you, particularly if you are doing a, a stories about the subjects, uh, you kind of like want to uh, take, see the world through their own eyes, through their own voices, right? So, so in that case, I think personal attitude is more important. Uh, and the kind of communication is more important. Uh, and besides, of course, uh, uh, by rules, uh, that's something we can uh, do better, right? We can do better. Uh, we can communicate uh, with the students, uh, with the subjects that uh, every 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 year or every certain period, whether how you see about the project, okay, and and try to hear uh, what they what they think about what is going on, uh, okay. So I think I think it's the attitude. The kind of uh, ethical ethical uh, attitude is more important. Uh, and besides, uh, we can uh, refine the rules, uh, refine the procedures, the logistics uh, much better. And and for the for the filmmakers, for for the whole industry in the future, I think it's very important that we learn from this controversy, from learn from this uh, event. Uh, Elizabeth Kerr, as you're the only one of us who's uh, seen this movie and <laughs> now it's been withdrawn, you're probably going to be the only one. The MG gives impressions about another aspect of this movie that's um, um, been commented on, that um, this movie is the, uh, as far as I understand, it's the first movie that's passed the local censors that uh, does uh -huh. actually include clips of the uh, 2019 uh -huh. protests. I mean, of course, it's not yep. a political movie, but it, uh, in dealing with them growing up, it, um, it, do it does air footage of 2019. Um, and what was your impression of that aspect? Of, of the documentary. Um, well, that was my first question when I first uh, when I first spoke with anybody on the film. Um, you know, is, what, what happens to the censors? Or have you been through the censors yet? Have you sent it? What's going on? What's going on? That was everybody's fear that that was going to get. But it passed, didn't it? Yeah. Hang it up. Um, it's been used. All this 14 and 19 were both used very much as context. Um, they were put in in the larger picture as one of many things that would have an impact on anybody that age. Um, I think it was probably appropriate, that was the right amount of use for it, considering the length of the film and considering the span of time it was trying to, it was not trying to cover, that it did cover. Um, I don't think, uh, there's probably, there could probably, different filmmakers might have made a much bigger put a much larger focus on on the on the protest sections um some filmmakers might have gone nah it's not what i'm looking for at all um i think she included enough um to make it clear that this was something that was going on and that was that was that was influencing everybody at the time including girls turning into women so um there, there's not much to say about that. it's it's write that line very well it's not going to get in anybody's uh it's not going to raise red flags it's not going to to be controversial it wasn't supposed to be 
I think it was supposed to be uh, a larger part of a larger picture, and that was it, part of the larger tapestry. All right, and Ms. Curgis, uh, finally, what advice do you have for documentary filmmakers in Hong Kong? Documentary film, uh, I said it a couple minutes ago, and, and Professor Moon, I, I kind of touched on it as, as well. There needs to be a professional body um, with a code of conduct and ethics and professional standards. The same way journalists have to do this, documentary filmmakers should have to abide by a certain code of ethics and professional behavior as well. Most do. Most parts of the world have some sort of have some sort of governing body like that. I'm not sure. Sh- as I said, I'm not sure if there's one here. I haven't worked a production here. Um, that would be my advice. Doc, doc filmmakers need to band together and go, okay, we need to, you know, set these rules down. Steal, steal coats from other places. Everybody's got one. You know, take, pick, pick and choose the ones that work best for Hong Kong and go from there. I don't want to see documentaries vanish from, I don't, from the, from the filmmaking, you know, landscape. That would be unfortunate. And, and what about the uh, ethical attitude and, and the communication that uh, Professor Ng was talking about earlier? Ethics and communication are completely different. Uh, are They're not completely different. They're entwined with making a documentary. That needs to be stronger. Ethics have never been a, a high priority in filmmaking in Hong Kong. That's, that goes much beyond just this one doc. Um, you know, people, I know tons of people who worked in the industry, and, oh, they never got paid, and they didn't do this. You know, it's, it's structural problems that need to be addressed if the industry is to continue. All right. And uh, that's another issue altogether. All right, Ms. Kerr, I'm afraid we're out of time. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's Elizabeth Kerr, a film critic. Also, many thanks to Kenny Ng, an associate professor at the Baptist University's Academy of Film. And uh, many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today. And, of course, to our guest presenter, Danny Gittings, and producer Yuki. Now, here's a look at the weather. It's uh, mainly cloudy with one or two uh, light rain patches. The top temperature will be around uh, 21 degrees during the day. Winds moderate to fresh easterlies, occasionally strong offshore and on high ground at first. And the outlook, mainly cloudy and misty in the next couple of days. Warm, humid and foggy on Sunday and Monday. Right now it's 18 degrees, relative humidity 86%. Want to be a perfect employer? You have to pay wages and make MPF contributions on time. Remember to make MPF contributions and submit remittance statements on or before the 10th day of each month. If there are public holidays on or before the 10th of the month, you should arrange your MPF contributions earlier. A 5% surcharge will be imposed for late contributions. Use electronic services to make timely and accurate contributions. It's 9.30, the news with Barry O'Rourke. The chief executive of the Hong Kong Rugby Union says organisers of this